From Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And it's the Friday Vine Pair Podcast. And today, we're going to talk about an article that really pissed Zach off. <laughs> what? <laughs> that is not what we are here to do. I was, I just the one, I was not really pissed off. Today. <laughs> this... <laughs> I thought it was a good intro. This podcast was going way better when Adam was having technical difficulties. <laughs> I mean, not pissed, but you have thoughts. I have thoughts. I do too. Do I ever not? Why am I on this podcast? We all have thoughts. <laughs> yeah. On this one. So, so, I mean, Zach, you want to set us up on, on what we're talking about <laughs> on Friday? Sure. Well, I think what we're talking about is um, a relatively recent passing in the world of wine of uh, Fred Franzian. It was a name that you recognize, even though you it's not the same Franzia. Uh, family. I always thought that it was, though. Always. Yeah. I know that makes sense. For sure. And and you've seen a lot of people do. I don't even know if you've seen, but the person whose article you wrote about, I went into the comments on Instagram. And a lot of people were like, I only know him for Slap the Bag. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Not the same dude. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, you know, and, and... Fred has a connection, family connections to the Gallo family. Like it's a, there's obviously like a, a really big, that broader kind of clan has had a huge influence on the American wine industry. Um, Fred, Fred is the founder of Bronco wine company, uh, which is most famous for purchasing and sort of rebranding Charles Shaw into the two buck Chuck that everyone knows it. And some of us love it as, um, and you know, he uh, passed away a couple of weeks ago at 79 and prompted a lot of reflecting in the world of wine about him, about uh, Tubuck Chuck in particular as this sort of avatar of both this maybe hard to define concept that I think we're going to talk a little bit about of the gateway wine, but also, you know, a a wine and a person that got a lot of pushback slash vitriol directed at him for probably some good reasons (laughs) and maybe some less good reasons uh, or at least reasons that I don't share and yeah, to to you know address the elephant in the room, Adam is referring to an <laughs> article by multiple time podcast guest Eric Asimov that, <laughs> that attempted to tackle some of this, and I think got at some of the things that I think are, are relevant here, but also I think maybe missed to me an important point in discussing uh, the legacy. And in part, it was you know Eric was pretty dismissive of the notion that that uh, Two Buck Chuck served as a gateway wine for anyone or for very many people. Uh, a point that I think was undercut by, like, you know, he didn't actually secure a bottle and try it, which, you know, whatever, you can talk about a thing without drinking it. But I do think that, um, you know, there's a there's an unfortunate sort of like, uh, it just, it just I think, didn't do the piece a service, in my opinion. But I'm not his editor. None of us are. I don't I think mean, Eric drinking it would have changed his opinion. <laughs> of yeah, no, but I think... <laughs> I, I don't Go think so. I think I think I think he would have found a, a way to you probably even like it less. But I think oh, that's a good the, point. The biggest issue that I have with that article or this idea at all is there is this resistance in certain corners of the wine world that there is no such thing as gateway wine, and that and there's there's this forgetfulness amongst a lot of people in wine. I think when they get to a certain level where they're drinking, you know, whether it is high end, you know, Sasakaya, you know, first growth Bordeaux, you know, incredible Rwanda, Barolo, et cetera, or they're even drinking, I don't know, Frank Cornelison, like the, 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 the killer Grovner shit on the natural front. That's like impossible to get right. That they ever drank wines that weren't this. Mm-hmm. And then, the only way they got into wine was 
through other high quality wines. And look, that may be true for someone who's made their life as a first dining critic and then a wine columnist at the New York Times. That could be very true. Mm -hmm. But that – and that could also be very true for someone who gets into restaurants very early in their life, right? I do Mm -hmm. know people in wine, but actually – they still a lot of my friends who started working in restaurants at you know sixteen seventeen eighteen also drank very cheap wines. Yeah, and, that was me. Yeah, and I just I think it's this narrative that's such bullshit. Like it denies the the work that these these other wines do do for so many people. That doesn't have to mean that you have to love those wines later in life, right? That doesn't mean that right. you can't say I won't drink them anymore and. We also have to admit that there are two groups of people. There are people who drink these gateway wines and never move on from them. And that's also fine. They are going to be a drinker of these kinds of wines for the rest of their life. Maybe it's because of price point. Maybe it's because they just, you know, they like it. And like, as we talk about often, right, it's their alcohol delivery system. They're not looking for more. But there are other people who even in the gateway wine discover something about wine that is special to them, that is that is interesting, that unlocks something, and they want to know more about wine. And that was me. I mean, we're going to talk about our gateway wines that we brought on this podcast today, but like, you know, the one I didn't bring because I honestly just didn't want to say not nice things because uh, I'm sure I don't like it anymore was Yellowtail. But like when I was in college, like, we drank some yellowtail and we thought we were really fancy. <laughs> sure. It was a gateway wine. Like I learned about Shiraz. Like they 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 did educate me. Like I don't I don't appreciate that this is always the narrative and then you you go to like Instagram and people posting the article and it's the typical people you would always see posting the article about like Oh, friends, you know, Dubuck Chuck is so gross and blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, we can all agree it probably wasn't a very good wine for those of us who are now – we have more advanced palates because we've drank more. But I do think it was a gateway wine for a lot of people. And that doesn't mean that you can't be critical of probably their farming practices and all the things right. in the article that I think he got right. Yeah, but I, I think also that's that's kind of my issue with it, which is that he's kind of like – blaming the fact that maybe these, you know, all of these questions, like, you know, these wines are made without regard for the environment and the workers, blah, blah, blah. But like, that's not only just cheap wines, you know, that's plenty of wine across all wine. And, and to criticize, I I think it seems like he has more of an issue with Franzia's approach, which seemed pretty, um, you know, uh, Iconoclastic. Yeah, <laughs> sure. That's Lots a good of word. Bravado, right? Yeah, of yeah, and um, but but to kind of like pinpoint this and and use that as the reason um, felt a little unfair to me. Yeah, and I think you're right very much that the the good parts of that piece and and the very fair things to criticize are that like a lot of the methodology and production you know approach to. Charles Shaw and other wines in the Bronco wine portfolio is like not something that a lot of people would choose to support in agriculture if they thought about it a lot. And and wine, right. because the, the process of getting from grape to bottle is a little bit opaque and people don't think about it a lot. There's a lot of people who shop and buy these wines who would maybe not buy, you know, non-organic grapes, say. And that's a fair contradiction to point out. But I think the the problem that I have, and it's one that you both have talked about some, but I want to add another piece to it is 
you know, Fred Franzia was very upfront about believing that there should be wine made in America that every American could afford to drink. Yeah. And I think there's actually a lot of nobility in that. Now, look, again, some of what that uh, the long term cost of that is unfortunate. And I think we can have a conversation about whether that is an actual valid uh, pursuit and how to do it, especially in a, you know, in, in a sort of from a modern lens. But at a time when the company was started in the 1970s, like the idea that you could have the equivalent of table wine in Europe here in the United States, that someone could make a, a real point to have wine available across the country that was very inexpensive and and at a price point that, again, virtually everyone could afford. You know, most people could afford to have, have wine every night if they wanted to. That, I think, is something that a lot of the people who criticize the company, criticize Fred, and criticize similar wines are really missing, which is that, yes, some significant portion of those drinkers will never move on from whether it's Charles Shaw, you know, wine, you know, Franzia in a, in a box, uh, you know, other, other sort of inexpensive wines that are, you know, grocery store wines or whatever. And that's maybe something to be saddened about. Maybe it would be nice if those people would consider, you know, looking at more distinctive wines, maybe spending a little more money, but some people can't or don't want to, and that's okay. But again, to to Adam's point, I think it's silly to say that, you know, for a lot of people, yeah, that the the experience, the the practice of drinking a very inexpensive wine regularly when you're young, absolutely transitions into drinking more interesting, nicer, more distinctive wine as you get older. Because at some point, you either want to try something new or you have the opportunity to taste things. You maybe. You make friends who are more interested in wine or you go on a trip and you try wine somewhere else or you go to a restaurant and you try a wine outside of your comfort zone. You realize, oh, I actually like this, too. And like getting people into the practice of drinking wine regularly, of demystifying wine and, and taking it out of this place where it's only something that has to be you know, kind of accompanied with a lot of um, ceremony and snobbery and putting it in a place where people can enjoy it in the way that they want to and, and with regularity, I think absolutely does help create a more sort of vibrant wine market that over time has shown tremendous benefits. I mean, Americans drink more wine and more varied wine than they ever used to. And I don't see, I don't say think you can like credit <laughs> two buck Chuck for that in any significant way, but it certainly played some kind of role. Yeah, I agree. And isn't it nice that people can continue to drink this while also having so many other options. Like you don't have to drink two buck chuck anymore. There's so much else available to you, but you can if you want to. And I yeah. think for a lot of people, yes, it was the entry entry point for drinking wine because it was affordable and not awful. My mind is so jumbled by this idea that like people in like the, the snobs in wine continue to put out that like, first of all, I don't believe that – like we have to talk about what what is actually gateway wine, right? And to me, yeah. gateway wine is wine that causes you to want to, to explore and continue to drink. It's a wine you probably drink a few times at least to get to know even if you like wine in the first place, right? The, I think what they define gateway wine as is like it's the first time I drink, you know, Chateau Montalena. Like, that's great. I'm glad that you got to do that at a young age. Most people don't. And also, if you only drank it once, it wasn't your gateway wine. It's a bottle you'll never forget for sure, right? But it's not like your gateway. That's not mm -hmm. what we're talking about here. So <laughs> the only people for whom, you know, bottles of 
you know, I don't know, Dujac or whatever, were like that they drank on the reg <laughs> or their gateways yeah. are people that were born motherfucking rich. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, you have a silver spoon and your parents had a cellar and you drank, you got to drink incredible bottles of wine. And that's great. Like, there are people who also grow up in money and have a really bad handbag addiction or watch addiction or things like that very early on in life as well because they're you know, accustomed to the finer things much younger, but <laughs> most people don't. And so like, I think to, to disc, to say this doesn't exist. I think that that's, that's more of what I have an issue with is like, it's not just that they're angry about that. They think Franzia, it was a, a kind of annoying dude. And that, you know, two buck Chuck is crap. I actually don't care if we're just going to say two buck Chuck is crap. We can have that argument all day, right? Of, of what it's positive as the negatives are as a, as a wine. Right. But part of what they are saying is that the reason they won't defend it, they won't give it any credence is because there is no such thing as gateway wine or that these wines are not gateway wines. And that is just not true. The largest wine company in the, in the world would not have as their tagline that their mission is to win new friends to wine if they didn't have the data to support that their brands bring more people into the category than any other brand, than any other brands. Like, mm-hmm. they, they, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's ridiculous that we can't just all admit that like the, the industry is, is it's a positive for the entire industry to get people to drink more wine. And if, if we can't admit that, then that is why wine will ultimately lose out to other alcoholic beverages. Yeah. Well, and I think you make a really good point, which is that I think you don't see this same kind of infighting in other drinks categories, right? I mean, to some extent you do, you know, you, but I think you even see like a lot of like, say brewers, right? Craft brewers or whatever, who look at, you know, macro bloggers yeah. and say, okay, maybe that's not what we want to drink. Although some of them do drink it from time to time yeah. and like even maybe celebrate it. But they also recognize that a person who's a beer drinker is a person who they can convert to craft beer. It's not that yep. hard to convince someone who likes to drink beer that in fact, actually what they should do is trade in that can of Bud Light for a lager made at their local uh, craft brewery or, you know, get them something that a macro brewery is generally not producing these days, like, you know, a, a IPA or something. And similar, I think, with spirits, you know, if you're a if you're a high end whiskey producer, you're not going to necessarily shit talk Jack Daniels because you recognize that if that gets someone to drink whiskey, then all you have to do is is put them side by side and say, look, we think ours is better. Do you mm-hmm. agree? And if people agree, then, you know, and they have the means to and they care to, they might well make your bourbon their new go to or they might pick up a bottle, too. And sometimes on a special occasion, they're going to want to drink that bourbon instead of the bourbon they drink regularly. And yet wine seems convinced that it cannot win that head-to-head comparison. And I actually think that's because in some ways the the challenge that some segments of the fine wine or however you want to describe it category have is they are selling something that is very, very hard to define um, and sometimes almost impossible to define. And it's a sort of virtue in, yes. uh, like a virtue in like, um, let's say we'll be generous and call it subtlety. And <laughs> look, I, 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 you know, listeners know, I have worked as a wine professional for a long time. I've drank a lot of wine. I've had a lot of very nice bottles of wine, some of which I paid for, some of which have been given to me or poured for me or whatever. And it's certainly true that some of the most exciting and memorable experiences of wine I've had have been expensive wines, but not all of them. Some of the best and most memorable bottles of wine I've had have been shockingly affordable. But what is the hard part for wine is that it in some ways is trying to make a, you know, this kind of argument against the widely available mass-produced wines is is like 
trying to convince people that they need to switch categories, even when they're not switching categories. Yeah, it's an identity thing and a morality thing. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's that piece of it, the morality piece. I think Joanna, that is is so crucial because yeah. if if a winemaker or a, even people, you know, advocates within the industry said, okay, our job is to convince people who like to drink wine that what they should drink is these other wines, and let's do it by telling them that these wines taste better, not not moralizing at them, not right. guilting them into it. I mean, those can be effective tools for some people. But it's it's such a it, it just feeds into the notion of wine and wine enthusiasts and wine professionals as snobs and yeah. as, you know, sort of frankly kind of holier than thou to to approach it solely from that angle. And instead of saying, I believe that if we put these two things side by side, ours is better and I can tell you why. And that is a challenge that beer takes up, that craft spirits takes up. Again, we can disagree or on how effectively they do that, but they generally are more than willing to stack their product up against, you know, the the, the market leader. And wine, I don't know if that's quite the same thing that a lot of winemakers be willing to do. No, they're not. Yeah, there's like, it's like chastising and there's shame associated with it too, I think. Yeah. And it's, it's what then causes, I think it's it's that exact attitude that causes, I think, a lot of people who choose these quote unquote gateway wines to never trade up because they're mm. like, well, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to be part of this yeah. attitude. I don't want to be made to feel well, like it feels I, like you can't be a part. You can't. Yeah, or or, be a part or of it, when yeah. I tell the person, well, what wines do you drink? Well, I really enjoy drinking, you know, I don't know. Cabot. Like, <laughs> I know it's going to be yours, you know, well, <laughs> uh, you know, that, I like drinking Charles Shaw. Like, yeah, let's just all, say what it is. Right. That all of a sudden, like, Oh, Oh, I don't think we have anything for you here. Like, no, you can. And I think that that's what says, okay, fine. Then I just like this. And I, I do think that two buck Chuck and probably the Trader Joe's wine shop as a whole has probably done more for bringing new people into the wine category yeah. than a lot of other people, including the person who wrote that article. <laughs> and I'm sorry, also a younger generation of people, which we know is a problem area for wine it is yeah i mean i think this is this is a good point too and and i think we should get to what we're tasting but i think yeah there's also a lot of dismissiveness towards the price point and look again like i said to come back to this question about the sort of ethics and whatever of making wine so inexpensively that you can sell it for two or three or four dollars a bottle that's those are valid you know comments and i think there's something to be said there but i think there is a kind of there is this sort of attitude that i don't love of people in the wine industry who are like but for only $20, and for some people, the jump between $4 for a bottle of wine and $20 for a bottle of wine isn't insignificant. Okay. Now, I think all three of us are fortunate that that is not the case for us at this point in our lives. But for a lot of people, it, it may be that case forever. And for a lot of young people, it's that case early in their drinking life. And you know what? They might say that a $20 bottle of wine is a, you know, that's a luxury for them. It's something they might indulge yeah. in from time to time. But if they want to be a regular wine drinker, they want to drink wine, you know, not maybe not every single day, although maybe they do, but maybe they want to drink wine three, four, five nights a week. The only way they're going to be able to do that is with wine that is, you know, four, five, six dollars a bottle. Mm -hmm. And if we say to those people, well, fuck you, you suck. You, there's no wine for you or you're not a real wine drinker because you won't pony up 20 bucks a bottle or more. We're just again. You're, those people are going to move on to something else. They already ha they already are f fast enough. The wine industry does not need to encourage them to leave wine alone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like look, this idea of this magic price that exists around twenty is true to an extent, but there's a lot of also bad wine at twenty, and you yeah. know, people are gonna people have to get there. 
You know, they have to get there and then be willing to like, if you're trying to get someone there immediately, even, even for someone who like might have the means, that's still, that's, that's a decent risk to take multiple times a week. If you like to drink wine, as opposed to, you know, anything else until you really feel comfortable experimenting and talking to the, the, you know, your wine merchant and going to a place that sells great wine and talking to the psalm, like all those things come with getting more comfortable with wine. And that's not something that people are easily going to do and just easily take that risk every single week until it's been proven to them that it is better. It's not going to take, you know, us just writing about it in an article over and over and over again. You also have to go out there and experience it. And so some of these other wines that are more affordable and the wines we're going to talk about that were our, you know, we're gateway wines for us are really helpful in doing that. Yeah. And with that, let's drink <laughs> something. So each yeah. of us, each of us brought a gateway wine. So a wine that we drank really early in our lives when we were of legal drinking age that <laughs> helped us recognize that we really enjoyed wine. And then we grew from there. I mean, I mean, come on now we're a vine pair. Like, whoa. But, uh, I'm, I'm curious, Zach, what is your gateway wine? So I went and got a bottle of Red Diamond Merlot, uh, which is a uh, Washington Merlot made uh, under the auspices of San Michel Wine Estates, largest wine company here in the state. And I drank a lot of this wine when I was like 22. Uh, I moved back to Seattle and uh, my roommate at the time uh, was a big fan of this wine too. And we went through plenty of bottles of it. And <laughs> I am actually really interested to taste it again because I have not drank it probably in a decade. So here we go. What do you guys have? So I have, so when in basically freshman, not freshman year, first year out of college, but senior year of college, um, I kind of graduated from the Yellowtail that I was talking about to the $8 Marquez de Caceres Rioja Crianza. And it was basically because... You know, Josh, who was my roommate and is my co-founder of Vine Pair, had studied abroad in Spain and he had like gotten into Rioja and this was a really affordable one we found and it tasted, it was the first one that I was like, oh, this is really fine wine. Like this is a lot better than the two buck chuck we were drinking mm -hmm. this, and the yellowtail. This is fine wine. And it's, it was eight bucks. And so it was really easy for me to feel like I was drinking something fancier and higher end than I don't know something with a kangaroo on the label mm -hmm. and uh yeah then I kind of got the bug from there of like wanting to try other wines but this one was a great one and I, I'm curious to see if I if I still love it <laughs> I haven't had it a really long time Joanna well uh speaking of Cavett I have Cavett Pinot Grigio growing up we always had like table wine um my grandparents always had that my parents too so really my first foray into wine was having um like spritzers or yeah like wine spritzers i guess they would let me drink that when i was little we called it a grandma's cocktail and and then as i got older this was kind of like the wine that was always at my parents house honestly it still is it's just a very very basic pinot grigio i I don't know. I don't think it's very bad, but it's definitely not going to be solid. It's not, it's not very complex. It's not going to challenge your palate, but it was something that kind of, yeah, like would have wine often enough and made me curious about wine to kind of go and explore on my own as I was out. And that's what good gateway wines do, right? They both make drinking wine sort of something that seems regular and familiar and they they give you just enough to kind of make you interested to see what else is out there yeah i mean like this i'm smelling it right now like there's 
Like there's some like herbs here. There's like, there's definitely some bright red fruit. There's like a little, it's like, it's sort of plush. It's, I mean, look, the, the term I would have used for it when I was just learning to drink wine was, I'd say this was very smooth, mm-hmm. but it has acidity, <laughs> right? It's, it's not, it's not overly oaked. Um, and it's just like really, really flavorful. And I think that's, that's what I had to have to really get into what made wine special and then want to try other wines. And that's a gateway wine. Exactly. All right. I'm going to try mine. Let's see here. It is, uh, it is as I remember. It's uh, very, very, <laughs> yeah, speak, of, speak of smooth. It is very smooth. Like not necessarily, like very, like a lot of ripe fruit, some like chocolatey vanilla notes. Unlike yours, it definitely has some like oak quality to it, or at least the flavors that I would associate with oak. Um, but yeah, just like very smooth. A lot of like, yeah, sort of richness, not much tannin, um, not much acidity. Like I can see why twenty two year old me really liked this wine. It was mm-hmm. like what I envisioned red wine tasted like, and drinking red wine seemed like a very grown up thing to do, uh, which is why I liked doing it. Yeah, yeah, I feel you. Well, this was really fun. We'd love to know what your gateway wines were. So hit yes. us up at podcast at vinepair dot com. Um, let us know if you agree or disagree with the idea of gateway wines, and if you agree, let us know what they were. Uh, we'd love <laughs> to hear from you. And uh, Zach and Joanna, I'll see you back here on Monday. Cool. Have a great weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire Vine Pair staff and everyone who's been involved in making Vine Pair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.